From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, David Crane's latest venture, the biggest global risks of 2021, a new sustainability chief bubbles up at Pepsi, and can Uncle Sam's buying power accelerate the clean economy? We're flexing our wallets this week on 350. It's February 5th, 2021. I can't believe a whole month has gone by of this glorious year. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me from still snowy Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. It would be very snowy. (laughs) I hope you're well. I hope there's no snow where you are, although I know there was in Tahoe. (laughs) No, no, no. We are 60 and sunny. We had some Mm -hmm. great rain here but uh, let's talk about next week because next week mm-hmm. is the real exciting week. And we don't, for the first time in many, many years, we don't have to keep peeking at what's the weather going to be like in Phoenix, Arizona next week um, because we don't have to worry about that. But, um, and, and, and I miss that terribly. But it is the week for Green Biz 21 and a big, big, crazy, fun, exciting, and hopefully impactful event. Um, what are you doing next week? What, what's your role? Well, I I get to play MC, which is kind of unusual for the keynote program. Um, I'm excited about that. And uh, I am doing two main things. One beyond that. One is uh, I am going to interview Sanda Ojiambo, the um, executive director of the UN Global Compact. It's a great... Uh, she's She's been in her position about... I don't know, seven months now since last June, and uh, it'll be our opportunity to to get to know her a little bit better. She's um, going to be speaking with me about human rights issues and, and how that applies to sustainability strategy. And then I'm getting to reprise um, my webcast from last spring on women in sustainability, women leaders, um, kind of a precursor to my badass women list. And I have some badass women on a panel. Um, we're going to talk about women leadership, um, women's leadership, feminine leadership, if you will, but also just ideas that um, they have for for how to to manage through this pandemic. Um, got uh, Jyoti Chopra, the uh, chief people, inclusivity, and sustainability officer at MGM. So she wears many hats, uh, Eunice Heath from Dow, and uh, Katrina Shum from Lush. So it's a great panel. What about you, Joel? You've got plenty, plenty, plenty. I get to take the week off because you're doing the main stage stuff. And I'll just be uh, <laughs> no. a, a, a napping and eating bonbons. Stop. Um, no, I've got, well, I'm going to do as I do every year and set the stage for sort of talking about where we are this year. And at the beginning of uh, the Tuesday, I, I've got a uh, one-on-one interview with Paul Pullman. I'm excited about Paul's, as you know, such a great uh, former CEO and chairman of Unilever and now runs a, uh, a firm called Imagine, always visionary, always a great reality check on, on, on how we're doing. Looking forward to that. And another conversation with Martina Chung, who 
is the president uh, of uh, S&P uh, Global Market Intelligence, I believe, if I got that right, talking uh, in the in the Greenfin mode about uh, sort of where we are in this moment as it relates to ESG and corporate reporting and the future of sort of sustainable finance as, as they see it over at Standard & Poor, S&P Global. So yeah, that's uh, some of what I'm be- I'll be doing, and uh, it's always great. And I guess we will have a live stream going on 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 GreenBiz.com of the main stage thing, so you can tune in there if you're not planning to be there. I guess you can say in person if our, on our virtual event. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, that's coming up. And so, rumor has it we might be doing some chit chat like this um, during the program. We will too. be doing some chit like this. Yeah. And, and by the way. Uh, did we mention Bill Gates? <gasps> um, no, we didn't. Oh my gosh! Yeah. How could we forget? Yeah, totally he will ex- be. Uh, he will be uh, speaking to the group, and um, we could not be more excited about that. So, lots coming up next week, and of course, we will have some excerpts from much of that, all maybe all of that uh, on next week's episode, maybe the week after that as well. So, stay tuned for that. And right now. Stay tuned for the weekend review. I'd like to start first, Joel, with your essay from this week, which poses this question What's a sustainable and just business model? Picking up from the, the Larry Fink letter to CEOs, I thought this was a great. Uh, uh, thought piece, frankly, on on how you do transition to that. I think um, many, 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 probably all of you are thinking about what this means for your company. Uh, what does value mean in this, sh- in this stakeholder capitalism world versus the shareholder capitalism world? What, what exactly does that mean? Um, how is value delivered? Uh, you know, I, I, um, and what is the value being delivered, et cetera. But I love this, this breakdown, Joel. Um, one of the things I always love about your essays is that you make them easy pieces. You, and here you give us five easy pieces on, on how, how this gets created. So I, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Thanks. Yeah. Um, you know, there was one uh, line in, in Larry Fink, the CEO of, of BlackRock, in his annual letter to, to CEOs that always makes waves and news. There was one sentence that just popped off the page and I, I couldn't get it out of my head. He said, there is no company whose business model won't be profoundly affected by the transition to a net zero economy. It's like, wow, what? A, that's really interesting. I mean, Every company's business model will be profoundly affected by the transition to net zero. And so I want to look at, well, what does that mean? And, and it sort of gets into, well, what is a business model and, and how do you think about that? So I did what uh, I always do when it comes to innovation and business and business models and creativity. And I called my friend Rob Shelton, who is a, just a veteran of this stuff. And he's the co-author of a book called Making Innovation Work. Uh, he He laid into my brain years ago the notion that what you innovate is determined by how you innovate. And and how you innovate is really what the process is about this whole process. Innovation, it seems, is not just a bolt from the blue or a rabbit out of a hat. It's a process that you develop. It's a muscle, in effect, that you can develop over time. And you you organize for it. You manage for it. 
you have a lot of processes. So anyway, I talked to Rob and he 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 said, well, here's how you know we think about business innovation and 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 a little bit of how that relates to to the the clean economy. Uh, and you know, I started. To, I then took that and said, okay, well, here's five examples of business model innovation. There's circular business models. There's regenerative business models. There's decarbonized business models. Uh, there's just and fair and equitable business models. And then local or hyper-local business models where things that used to be dispersed are now happening in a very place-specific way. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's 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 not that deep, but it, it goes, it does get into the framing that I think and hope will be helpful for a lot of companies who, who want to start getting ahead of this curve if it indeed is coming down the way that uh, Larry Fink says it will. Yeah, and that framing is what I really appreciated because it uh, lets people take their innovation and their their creativity to where it needs to go. But thank you for that. Thank yeah, for that. well, there's another one that's sort of a story from last week that, that sort of follows that uh, in a similar vein, and it's what the U.S. can learn from China about how leasing affects EV transition. And, and China is is really on a tear on electric vehicles. They are all in and they are now the largest market for for electric vehicles uh, and uh we will we're going to continue to see leadership they own the battery market or they're trying to own it uh korea and some others own it, south korea as well but uh certainly uh, american manufacturers are, are are buying their batteries a lot of them from china you know it's the largest car market for tesla and and so on and so you know what we can learn from that, uh, how, and 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 how they're getting people uh, attuned to and comfortable with electric vehicles, and over that range anxiety and whatever else is on their mind, uh, sort of through the rental leasing kind of arrangement. I thought that was really really interesting. What what did you take from this? Yeah, it's it is a really insightful piece, and it does really include. Um, uh, suggestions for fleets, which of course is super important for our readership. But you know, I mean, there's a there's a couple of very straightforward and obvious things like it it'll help leasing will help with capex, right, and reducing capex. Um, you can also get a sense of of what you need to be doing with these things. How, what's the pattern? How many do you need, etc. Um, I love this also this concept of flexibility. And one of the examples in this story is how you know, like if you take a an e-commerce company like a, an Amazon, for example, um, you know they're they're going to have different peak periods and they're they're going to want more vehicles on the road. And uh, you want to buy those vehicles? No, you want to lease them. So I think um, that was another point that, uh, thing that I took away was you know the uh, ability to just sort of rethink the ownership of these logistics vehicles. And the other the the, the final thing that really intrigued me was the idea that um, these rental companies. So like if you think about a typical fleet rental company, you know it's not just going to be in the future the fleet the fleets themselves the car the the vehicle whatever the van whatever it is but in in in, especially with electric vehicles it could be the charging services and how they get set up and where they get set up and there's a whole sort of uh talking about value creation there's a whole new value that these these uh, companies could see in these services that, that they probably haven't been able to offer in the past so it's a it's a it is a a great adoption um business story, but also a great business model story um, for those that are hoping to uh, to benefit from the EV transition. 
Well, let's pivot over and not too far to the third story that I think is really interesting from this week, which has to do in, in large part, in some large part, with electric vehicles. And this is the piece by uh, Cynthia Valina called How U.S. Government Procurement Can Leave the Clean Economy. And I think it's important to uh, point out that Cynthia spent 30 years uh, in the federal government as a senior program analyst at the Office of Management and Budget. And she worked very closely during some of that time with the Council on Environmental Quality, the Federal Energy Management Program, and supported the uh, federal purchasing efforts uh, on energy efficiency and green purchasing and things like that, that, that believe it or not, has did not go away at all. That's one of those under-the-radar kinds of programs that even the Trump administration couldn't kill, or I don't even know if they tried. The government's the largest buyer of goods and services, uh, certainly in the United States, maybe in, in, in the world. Just for example, to their earlier point, uh, the federal government has 645,000 vehicles um, uh, at least as of a couple of years ago, it probably hasn't changed all that much. And what is the opportunity uh, for the Biden administration that that wants to start replacing them with American produced EVs? Uh, and that's you know going to be costly. It's going to take time. Um, there are only a handful of EV electric vehicles being assembled in the U.S. right now. Tesla, General Motors, and Nissan, I think, are the the big three in that score. Um, but uh, what's interesting about this piece that Cynthia did is is the the continuing opportunity for the federal government to play a significant role in purchasing uh, greener products and services, and and therefore to to truly uh, help grow the market for not just clean vehicles but a whole range of of. Uh, clean, renewable, uh, recycled uh, uh, products and services. So it, it was, you know, and what she did in this piece is to show how that the potential, which, as I said, has not gone away and it continues to be enforced, how they can maximize the potential of that in the new administration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you, and I want to just po- point back to the EV example you just gave. Um, it, uh, there is actually a lot more activity coming to the U.S. and that will be also spurred on by the the interest in the Biden administration's. A number of the EV van and truck companies that are expanding their operations are planning um, U.S. plants. So I think that's an awesome opportunity, and this policy will uh, will help uh, accelerate that, if you will. The thing for me that was the, sort of my biggest takeaway from this this uh, piece was. That right now, many of the procurement strategies are very agency specific and very um, thing specific, right? So you you talked about EVs. There's also, of course, computers and and um, how they're how they're acquired. And there's um, the EPEAT, right? You know, there's there's different standards around that. And part of um, what what the argument was here is these are great. These individual p- criteria are great, but there needs to be more holistic strategy and approach. Um, and there shouldn't be just all of these just individual mandates that there needs to be a, a step back and a, a um, sort of a higher level strategy. So, yeah, I mean, I think there is an opportunity for that now under this administration. Yeah, we need the federal government to get on the bus and that bus better be electric.
Last week was Davos week, and that means another edition of the Global Risks Report, the report that looks at uh, some dozens of, of potential risks over the next 10 years based on a survey of uh, executives and policy leaders and, and geo leaders from around the world. Joining me to talk about what's new in risk this year is Rob Bailey, Director of Climate Resilience at Marsh and McLennan Companies, which helped compile the report. Hello, Rob. Hi, Joe. So it was such an extraordinary year, 2020. I imagine it had a some significant impact on how the thought leaders you interviewed uh, can perceive of risk going forward. What's changed and what do you think the pandemic did to uh, the, the kind of survey that you do? In a way, I think the the remarkable thing is is what's not changed. So in the, the last couple of years, we've seen um, the Risk Perception Survey putting environmental risks right at the very top of the global risk agenda in terms of both uh, severity and likelihood. And this year, that remains the case. So the top right-hand quadrant of the global risk register is still overwhelmingly green. We're seeing risks like extreme weather, the, the risk of failure of climate action, biodiversity loss, all dominating the risk outlook. The one thing that has changed, which probably isn't that surprising, is that we've seen the risk of infectious diseases insert itself among that, that group of environmental risks. So it's now considered the fourth most uh, likely risk over a 10-year horizon and uh, the most impactful over a 10-year horizon. But the, but the key message is that environmental risks still dominate the overall risk outlook. I noticed that this year's report added 12 new risks. Uh, there are 35 uh, in all. Is that common to add that many kinds of risks? And, and why are risks being added? Things are just becoming um, more complex, and and there was a view, I think, over you know the 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 risk framework had been static, if you like, for some time. The, the perception survey, and it was felt that it was it was time to broaden that and and allow a little bit more richness in the way in which the experts are allowed to respond to the survey. And and one of the things that we've also tried to do in, in this year's report is to differentiate a little bit um, among the risks in terms of their characteristics, if you like. So some some of these risks are, are drivers, if you like, and some of them are threats. And within that, some of them are sort of um, uh, threat multipliers or interlocutors, if you like. So you know, one of the key um, risks that we've looked at this year is the risk of climate action failure, which you can imagine, you know, that's driven by things like human-made environmental damage, the fracture of interstate relations, resource politicization, and so on. But it really comes into its own when you think about how it is multiplying other risks in the global risk register. So it's it has implications for um, the risk of a commodity price shock. It has implications for risks associated with um, youth disillusionment, which is a big thing that's coming up the risk register at the moment, large-scale involuntary migration, and of course, all of the risks that we're more familiar with associated with climate change, such as extreme weather, natural catastrophes, and so on. 
Well, let's go back to that one that is the uppermost in the right quadrant, which means it's the highest impact and highest likelihood, at least by the perception of the respondents of the survey, and that's climate action failure. I find it interesting that the fail failure to act in and of itself is seen as a risk. It's, uh, it's the risk of inaction. Yeah, it's a bit of an odd one. And, and we've looked at it in, in the report this year in terms of um, a blind spot. Um, because uh, the, the risk of climate action failure multiplies so many of the other risks in the, um, in the risk register, and because the gap between um, the, the potential severity of the problem the, you know, the implications, the consequences of failing to act on climate change and the level of attention and action that the, that the issue is actually receiving, we, we've characterized it as a blind spot. And in a way, that feels almost paradoxical to me because never in the, in the sort of the 15 years that I have been working on climate change have I seen the issue you know, consistently in, 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 in a sustained way receive as much attention among policymakers and business leaders as it does now. Nevertheless, the risk perception survey identified it as, as the key issue in which the gap between consequence and uh, level of response is the biggest. I was struck also by uh, the report's finding that a polarized industrial landscape may emerged in may emerge in the post-pandemic economy. Talk a little bit about that. What that means, a uh, polarized industrial landscape, and and why that's a risk. So, uh, in in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, we're seeing um, a, a, a natural um, retrenchment, if you like, to more national policy-making and uh, inward-looking industrial policy. Um, that can have potential risks associated with trade and supply chains for businesses. Um, we've also seen um, within the uh, economy, um, uh, small businesses, small and medium-sized enterprises in particular struggling to cope through the pandemic. Inevitably, you know, they have um, lower levels of, of working capital, uh, lower resource bases, lower cash in the bank, maybe lower levels of insurance to deal with these sorts of shocks. And so um, the kind of the, 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 the business makeup of the economy is being threatened. Um, and then the other issue that we're seeing that um, for businesses is uh, what we've called increasing popular scrutiny. So businesses are being looked at much more closely, whether that's by policymakers, regulators, investors, but also publics and consumers for how they are behaving. Are they being socially responsible? Uh, do they have good governance? Are they being environmentally responsible? And we, and we expect all of these uh, factors to continue to heighten for some time after the pandemic has passed just as uh, just because of the the changes that have happened in the economy and societies, and the fact that it will be a sort of a long and slow road to recovery. It feels like that this is a time of greater uncertainty that I can recall in in many 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 years, uh, and uh, social, environmental, economic, 
obviously uh, the climate crisis in the biodiversity crisis along with uh, everything else that's going on does does all of that feel like a risk in and of itself well all of these things i think are interconnected and and that's one of the things that the global risk report illustrates but i also think you know with all of that there there is the risk of um decision makers just being overwhelmed with the sheer amount of risk and uncertainty that's out there and the sheer amount of complexity and interconnectedness that's out there and one of the key things that boards and executives and risk managers in companies need to get to grips with are ways to rationalize and simplify this and cut through it using tools like scenario analysis, re-engaging with the question, I think, of low probability, high impact events, trying to scenario game those sorts of uh, events and understand how they may play through supply chains. So rather than just sort of becoming overwhelmed with the sheer complexity of the problem, I think uh, one of the key takeaways uh, for me from this year is that we have to kind of go back to basics, really, and go back to you know what we know in terms of how to understand complexity and uh, undertake scenario analysis and gaming scenarios in order to make it a lot more tractable. We're talking about the 2021 Global Risks Report issued last week by the World Economic Forum and Marsh and McLennan Companies. Rob Bailey is Director of Climate Resilience at Marsh and McLennan. Thanks so much, Rob. Thanks, Joe. A pleasure. What skills does it take to become successful as a Chief Sustainability Officer? As ESG concerns and issues take up residence in the boardrooms and C-suites of corporate America and beyond, the case for embedding those responsibilities more deeply into day-to-day business is growing stronger. I've got a history in sustainability, but I'm a business guy. I'm not a deep, you know, I didn't major in environmental science. That's Jim Andrew, the Chief Sustainability Officer of PepsiCo, who assumed that post in August 2020 after the retirement of his predecessor, Simon Loudon. Andrew joined PepsiCo about four and a half years ago after heading strategy and innovation at Royal Phillips. I recently chatted with him about the food and beverage company's aggressive new commitment to become net zero by 2040, a full decade before the timeline set by the Paris Agreement. I asked him what we should expect from PepsiCo as it aligns behind that strategy. Having clear goals, having really good data integrity is at the heart of our, you know, all of our ESG reporting. But that's important because then we know what we're trying to do. We know how we're doing. It also builds trust. And, you know, the, the, there's never enough, uh, you know, that, that's something that we take really importantly. Yeah, we, so what are you going to see from us? We're going to report our progress annually. In our sustainability report, we published, uh, we have one coming up in a few months and be happy to talk to you again when that comes out. Anytime we can provide real-time updates, we will. Um, you know, all of the, the, the uh, reporting entities were, you know, were in alignment with the Global Reporting Initiative, the CDP, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. We just issued our first report. So we are going to be transparent. You're going to see it on a regular basis. 
Uh, and we're, you know, our objective is set some bold goals and then, and then go get them and, and hold ourselves accountable mm-hmm. and be able to share that with people. Mm-hmm. So yes, you're right. We, you, that's what you can expect. And we have goals for, we have a number of goals for 2025. We have mm-hmm. goals for 2030 and obviously we have uh, for 2040 as well. Let's hone in on two initiatives that illustrate his team's focus on integrating sustainability considerations into everyday business operations. One of those is sustainable from the start, focused on the company's product designers and the development process. You know, we're looking at where are their business processes where we can embed sustainability. And new product development's a great example, right? Everybody, every, every part of the company gets, is interested in and, and cares about what happens in new product development. So we, we, we started this uh, program called Sustainable from the Start, and it really puts sustainability at the heart of product design and new product development, because what it does is it, it encourages, but it also enables product development teams to make environmental impact a part of their, their decision-making from the very beginning as they think about the whole product life cycle. So we've rolled out some tools that really help because you got to make it simple. Everything, you know, the simpler, the, the less friction that we can introduce, the easier it's going to be. So we gave people a set of tools so that they can estimate, for example, like the carbon and the water footprint of products in development. And what are the choices that they make early that are going to affect those footprints? And then they can compare that data to some best practice benchmarks that we've built in so they know what good looks like and they can make more informed decisions. The other program I'll highlight is the company's move to set internal carbon pricing. The PepsiCo sustainability team is focusing first on two areas, employee business travel, and the carrier selection for its logistics operations. Once again, here's Jim Andrew. That's another great example of where we're trying to take environmental sustainability considerations and just put them in the normal flow of business. So, you know, we're going to have to collaborate and get employees involved and also partners and suppliers and everything. So how do we eliminate the carbon impact of employee business air travel. A lot of people travel, a lot of people may or may not fully understand what, they, what the uh, implications are of that. And so what we have done is we have said that anytime any employee is gonna travel by air for business, we're gonna take, uh, we're gonna put a price on that. And then we're gonna take that money and we're going to deploy it with a third party into our supply chain. So it's not, you know, something that's out there. It's a into our supply chain to fully eliminate the impact of emissions from that flight. And it's a flight by flight and it allows every employee, every time they book a flight to see that their choice has an impact and also we as a company will do something. So it's, it's again, it's about how do, you, how do we excite people? Because people get excited about, hey, I can do something. How do you educate them? Because it's right there. I mean, it's, it's going to be in the booking tool and we are programming it you know, as we speak. And then it's ultimately about how do you engage them? 
So then they go do something. And, and that, that we're rolling out now. Mm-hmm. And by, you know, middle of this year, it'll be up and, and running, you know, full, full go. Um, and then what we're also looking at is how do we, uh, we're, we're looking at how do we build the carbon impact into carrier selection for third-party logistics? So, you know, we're working with our procurement team so that the climate goals are a part of the consideration when they're choosing carriers. Because what this will do is it will help reinforce, again, climate considerations in business decisions, which will help overall drive GHG reductions. Um, And then we're going to learn, you know, we're going to learn from these things and we're going to look for where can we continue to expand across other business processes, ways to just embed this into the everyday thinking and activities. To read the entire interview with Jim Andrew, visit greenbiz.com. This is Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer and analyst covering sustainable transportation for GreenBiz. A few weeks ago, a company that owns one of the biggest electric vehicle charging networks in the U.S., called EVgo, announced that it plans to become a publicly traded company. Companies go public every day in America, but EVgo isn't opting for the traditional route. It's merging with what's called a special purpose acquisition company, or a SPAC. Two years ago, SPACs were a relatively underused financial tool, but last year they became the hot thing on Wall Street for climate tech companies and in particular for electric vehicle companies. EVgo's public play, which will see it raise over $500 million, is an example of the big promise of electric vehicles in 2021. But to me, it's also a really fascinating personal story. It's part of the legacy of David Crane. David Crane is an investor and was the former CEO of the large energy player NRG Energy. A decade ago, while leading NRG, Crane helped create EVgo as a division of the company. The idea was a bit before its time. There were only a handful of EV models on the market in 2010. And in 2015, Crane left NRG and a year later, EVgo was sold off to outside investors. But fast forward 10 years later, and that idea has finally come. So what's Crane's role today? He and his team created that SPAC, the financial tool I told you about earlier, that merged with EVgo to take it public. I thought there was something just so poetic about the company slowly coming full circle under Crane's leadership. I couldn't resist, and I jumped on a Zoom call to chat with him about it. He was less nostalgic than me, but here's what he had to say about the deal when I pressed him on how he felt about the reunion. I I, I guess there are certain aspects of that that are are satisfying. I think the, the main, the main aspect is uh, it's just so gratifying. Um, I think we started EVgo in 2010 and we knew when we started that we were five years too early. Uh, But, but, I, I said at the time, well, it's not a lot of money. And if we wait until it's really ripe, you know, the Exxon Mobiles will have jumped in or the giant utilities and they will just brush us aside. So as a medium sized company, we have to get out there early. So um, 
I knew we were five years too early, but it's really been 10 years, right? Because, uh, and, and, and timing is everything in business. So I guess any sort of personal gratification I, I, I feel about being part of the EVGO story again is, is far outweighed just by the excitement I feel about this is a revolution whose time has finally come. A revolution indeed. But Crane's been around long enough that he has a higher level perspective. His family owns four electric vehicles and three of those he acquired a decade ago, a Fisker Karma, a Tesla Roadster, and a first generation Nissan Leaf. For him, the EV revolution might finally be here, but he's hoping it goes faster than expected. These projections are talking about one out of every four cars uh, being sold in 2030 being electric. Um, and I'm like, well, what about the other three of four? <laughs> you know, it's, you know, flat screen TVs went from 0% market share to 100% market share in a decade. Why, why can't we achieve, uh, achieve that with plug-in uh, transportation? So I like to think that while some people are, are you know, suggesting that this current, you know, sort of, uh, enthusiasm is actually misplaced euphoria that in fact that that history will look back that we were actually more cautious than we needed to be and that's our 350 podcast for this week as always you can go to greenbiz.com 350 and you'll find out more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned this week while you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We publish a different one every day of the week and twice on Wednesdays. You can go to greenbiz.com newsletters to learn more about them. We'd love to hear from you. As always, send your comments, questions, and tips to us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week from GreenBiz21 with another edition of GreenBiz350. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.